This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, your twice-weekly dose of people who live for what they believed. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and with me today is Mia Wong. Hi, how are you? Hello. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty good. Um, yeah, I'm being Mia. It's, it's a good time. Yeah. Do you want to explain what you mean by that? Oh, yeah, since I guess I have not explained it anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm trans. I'm Mia. I'm now out. Um, yeah. Mia is one of the many hosts of the podcast, It Could Happen Here, that if you don't listen to, you should be listening to. How and dare it's been you? really f- funny because I'm really bad at remembering more than one name for somebody. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm very excited to completely forget what your old name was because it was really hard for me to remember two names. Yeah, for I'm sorry. <laughs> really, it was really hard on me that. that you were in the closet. That's the hardest part about other people being Honestly, in the closet. Like, I, 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 really did, me. I really did feel bad just like making all my coworkers like gender me all the time. And I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm no, going to be honest. I'm... It was easy. I'm going to be honest. You were not an ounce of burden. Yeah, no, and it, it was not burdensome. I'm just really excited to have you on as a guest. To, yeah, um, to be fair, Margaret, you don't remember most people's names, even if they have, even if it's just one. Oh, yeah. Well, what it is is that if, especially if you have an Instagram handle and it's not what your name is. That's your name. I, after about a year, if I see you in public, you're going to be like Rat Pizza Man 47 or whatever. <laughs> this is Margaret. This is Margaret. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that person. That yeah, person. totally. That human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huh. I remember things. Uh-huh. Which is why I'm such a trustworthy history podcaster. Our producer is Sophie. Sophie, how are you doing? How's your dog? Anderson's great. She's wearing like a really nice like green vest that my friend got her that is like water resistant, which is like It looks like a cape. Bird. Yeah, it does look like a cape. And um I think she feels powerful in it. And um that's nice. And I love her. Yeah. Mia. Do you have any pets? No, it's it's very okay. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> <laughs> Mia likes animals. Yeah, yeah it's okay, okay. So one one of one of one of my one of the most terrible things about my human condition is that I love cats and I'm unbelievably allergic mm-hmm. to them. 
Oh, and that's they all rough. love me. Like every yeah. single cat I've ever met loves me, except for one who was my grandpa's cat who would just maul everyone who walked past them. But other than that, and like a, her allergy is legit. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I, I get. I, 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 I. After about an hour, I sound like I'm dying. It's <laughs> yeah. Ooh. So, okay. So in order to record my next metal album, I'm gonna get you over and bring a cat. Mm-hmm. You're gonna get some incredible coughing. Excellent. Hot excellent. Notch. Yeah. Our audio engineer is Ian. Hi, Ian. It's funny to say hi to Ian because he can't say anything back. Everyone say hi to Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. This is the first time I've ever made this joke. I don't recycle jokes. Nope. Our theme music was written for us by Unwoman. So, Mia, today, this is really fun. I love that I don't tell my guests what I'm going to tell them. What my guests <laughs> <Yeah. about. laughs> today, I'm going to talk about some like street trash punks. Before punk, like 10 years before punk. Actually, they're one of the aesthetic inspirations for punk, but we'll get to that. In the late 60s in New York City, on the Lower East Side, there was a crew of weirdo artists. They named themselves something unprintable. They were the up against the wall motherfuckers. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about them. You ever heard of the up against the wall motherfuckers? I, ha- okay. I have some incredibly vague memory of being in a college class where I hadn't slept for three days and a pre- a, I, t- I took a class on like the mm-hmm. underground and uh, it was this whole uh-huh. like thing. We started with like the actual book, the underground, and then went through a whole bunch of stuff. And I, I think they mentioned them there, but I was so Probably. tired that I remember, I remember nothing about them at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, they are, they did not seek the limelight. And that's one of the things that's so interesting and amazing about them. They did as much as like, not any of the other groups that were around at the time, right? But as much as like a great number of the ones who are a lot more famous. Um, and they just like very consciously didn't seek the limelight. And so there's, it's uh, harder to know about them. And I'm going to talk about them. One of, the, one of the motherfuckers, they call themselves the motherfuckers, among other epithets for themselves. His name is Ocean Newman. And he wrote a memoir called Up Against the Wall, Motherfucker, and notes for next time. And his memoir starts off this way. In 1967, I became a founding member of an anarchist street gang called Up Against the Wall, Motherfuckers, an unexpected career move for a nice Jewish boy with an MA in history from Yale. We called ourselves the Motherfuckers. We saw ourselves as urban gorillas swimming in the cult- countercultural sea of freaks and dropouts. We didn't like the media term hippies, who had swarmed the cheap rent tenements of the Lower East Side of New York. Those young dropouts were our base, and we attempted to organize them for total revolution through rallies, free feasts, raucous community meetings, and a steady stream of mimeographed flyers. Against the vapid spaciness of flower power, we proclaimed the need for armed love. Um, the history of these people is incredibly hard to pin down, right? Because, oh, they left behind a lot of, like, mimeographed flyers and shit, right? <laughs> but... There's, there's two motherfuckers who are still alive who talk about this stuff publicly, and they really don't see eye to eye about what <laughs> happened and what it means and whether or not they were, like, totally on the right track or whether they were a bunch of fucking asshole kids. You've got Ocean Newman, who I just quoted. His Jewish family had fled from the Nazis, and he grew up in a privileged academic Marxist household. He joined the motherfuckers as a disaffected artist, but after he left, he started really questioning the whole thing. And he wrote a book about it, and his primary focus is basically like, we were dumb kids and mostly it was bad. 
that is my takeaway from what he wrote about the, his time in the motherfuckers. So he has his bias going on. These days, he's a Bay Area movement lawyer who helps people fight shitty landlords. Actually, specifically helped one of my friends fight a shitty landlord. So that's awesome. Thank you, yeah, sick. Then you've got Ben Morea. He's the opposite in so many ways. He grew up rough and poor. He grew up first in the Maryland, Virginia area, but his mom moved to Hell's Kitchen when he was 10. Uh, he's also white. And he spent the rest of his youth on the streets in New York. Uh, he's still alive too. He hasn't written a book about the motherfuckers, but he gives a lot of interviews. And his take on the motherfuckers is a fucking 180 from OSHA's. <laughs> he's full of pride about the things that they changed and the lives that they impacted. His interests these days are animism, anarchism, and painting. And he's actually on Instagram and you can buy his paintings. Um, and I suggest you look him up. He's an abstract painter. And he's got his biases coming into what he talks about too. And all of them only started writing about this shit 40 years later. <laughs> They're like, and both of them will fess up to being like, look, I don't know. This is the best we can relect and <laughs> recollect. And some of them are like, no, I remember it like this. No, I remember it like this. And they're just like, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Also, they did a fucking lot of crime, like a lot of crime. And one of the things about crime that I would recommend to my listeners is to not talk about it much. Yeah. So the shadowy history of the motherfuckers <laughs> is what we're talking about today. And I've got my biases too, right? Uh, as I try and figure out this story. Um, but this is the best understanding that I have of what happened between all the conflicting sources. Usually when one person is like, no, this is right. And one person is like, this is right. I'm like, hey, you're both right. You're both wrong, whatever, you know? Right. We're going to start with Ben Morea, uh, the guy who still likes everything that he did, the animist. He grew up in Hell's Kitchen as a teenager and he got into jazz and he played the vibraphone, which I had to look up. I didn't know what a vibraphone was. Yeah, wait, what is that? <laughs> it's like a marimba or a glockenspiel or whatever. Huh. Like it's like, Got a bunch of bars you hit them with thing with like a mallet. Um, it really will make everyone know that I'm like not. I don't know much about jazz. It's a very <laughs> major <laughs> jazz instrument of the time. It's, it's called the vibes, right? Yeah, they're cool. They sound really cool. He was also really into heroin. Uh, I didn't have to look up heroin. That makes whatever. Okay, <laughs> this wasn't as good for him as playing vibraphone was. He went yeah. to prison. Uh, he was still a teenager when he went to prison. And when he was in prison, he quit cold turkey. Um, during his stay in the prison hospital for the aforementioned quit heroin cold turkey, which put him in the hospital because that's one thing that happens if you quit heroin cold turkey. Thank you, prison industrial complex. Um, he started doing art therapy and he learned to love painting. So he gets out of prison. There's conflicting stories about whether or not he got back on heroin, but that's not my or anyone's business um when he got out of prison he was really into art now and painting and then he met the anarchists and ben Morea and the up against the wall motherfuckers they're like these like really raucous anarchists like kind of like you the listener who's not super familiar might like expect of the anarchists like they're gonna like wear all black and ski masks and like carry around switchblades and like scream revolution and shit they're close to the media conception of anarchists right that's not the anarchist that Ben met. And this is really cool to me. He met the pacifists. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> he met really fucking based anarcho-pacifists. <laughs> Specifically, he met Judith Mullane and Julian Beck, 
who were the anarcho-pacifists who founded a place called the Living Theater, which is still around. It's a, an experimental art theater. It's the oldest experimental theater in the United States. It does really amazing shit. We'll talk a little bit about it. Let's just talk about them now, because I like them. Uh, Judith Mullane was a, a German-Jewish immigrant. Her parents had come over in 1929 when she was like three, bringing her with her. Uh, they were some of the first people, well, not the first people, but they were in the earlier waves of people being like, this, is, this isn't going to go well. Yes, this whole Nazi thing is <laughs> it's a little bit concerning. Yeah, like it's not really the place for us. Uh, and they got the fuck out. And Julian Beck and her husband, um, or sorry, Judith Mullane and her husband, Julian Beck, were in an open marriage. He was bisexual or queer or whatever. And I think this is part of why they were in this open relationship is that he wanted to also fuck dudes. He had his own boyfriend outside the marriage, but also the couple were in a triad with like yet another guy, this like dock worker guy who was also married to someone else. <laughs> glad, glad, glad to see anarchism, no matter where you no. are in what time period, never changes. No. Dear listener, you did not invent polyamory. (laughs) (laughs) They were a fucking polyamorous, polycule, queer anarchist theater couple. (laughs) Nothing ever changes. And, and, this is part that just makes me happy. In 1986, after all of the stuff we're going to talk about, he's the villainous preacher in the movie Poltergeist 2. Oh my God. Because he's an actor, right? (laughs) He actually, he died the year before the movie came out after he died, but, and he wrote a ton of books, mostly poetry, some about theater itself. Judith, this is my favorite part. She played Granny in the Adams Family 1991 movie. What? The crazy, awesome, like, witch crone lady. Amazing. Uh, she's also been on, like, The Sopranos and a bunch of other shit. And this is matters to me because, like, this is the original crone witch from my childhood, Right. I was exactly the right age to be really excited about the Adams Family in 1991. <laughs> and Granny Frump from the Adams Family was the first crone I've ever met, seen, was played by a polyamorous anarchist Jew <laughs> who fled the Nazis at the age of three. <laughs> oh, we love to see it. Okay, so to talk more about how cool this couple is, at one point they got arrested for not paying their taxes. And their argument was basically like, we don't want to pay taxes. The government's bad. <laughs> and for anyone at home who's playing Cool People Did Cool Stuff Bingo, they represented themselves in court. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not my recommendation, to be clear. But I will say I have a disproportionate number of the kind of people who get written about like this represent themselves in court. In this case, she dressed up like a Shakespeare character. <laughs> In court. I'm not like I wasn't a big theater kid so I don't it's like Merchant of Venice costume but I don't actually know what that means uh. you know and they also kept getting arrested over and over again for like uh, one thing they get arrested over and over again for it was indecent exposure because they did experimental theater and a lot of their plays involved nudity and a lot of the stuff that I think that people take for granted well we can no longer take for granted thanks to the way that whatever the way that the right wing is trying to push things you know, you could get arrested for having a play where some of the actors were naked. And um, so they got arrested a lot. The Living Theater is still around. It's one of the oldest experimental... Th- it's the oldest experimental theater in the U.S. It tours. It performs on the streets. It performs in prisons and stuff for, um, for prisoners. And basically, they try to undermine authority in content and form. 
Uh, I think they're fucking swell. It's possible that the first organizing meetings I went to as a baby radical in New York City were at the Living Theater, but I, I'm not certain. I know it was at a theater, at a weird experimental theater. I'm not sure. But to be fair, this is anarchist New York. There could be a lot of those. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So, Ben Morea, the crazy jazz-loving painter uh, street kid, meets them. They teach him anarchism. He got real into it. The pacifism didn't rub off. Instead, he started hanging out with what he refers to as the political wing of the anarchists, which I think is in contrast to the, the art anarchists. Like veterans from the fucking Spanish Civil War who are on their like 60s and shit. And he's like in his early 20s. He starts going to political discussions at the house of this other guy, Murray Bookchin. Hmm. Murray Bookchin is famous for two things. Murray Bookchin is famous first, and probably more importantly, his concept of municipal libertarianism is what inspired the Kurdish concept of democratic confederalism, the system that a few million people are trying to live under in northern Syria today, right? Very influential in the lower leftist, the, you know, anti-authoritarian left in the world. The other more important thing about Murray Bookchin is that people who really like him tag read Murray Bookchin on walls, and I think that's funny. (laughs) literally constantly my, my my other favorite Murray Bookchin thing is just he's just so grouchy yeah all of the time this is just his like uh-huh. he I don't know I like I feel like this is kind of like a, a, a the, the the art of public access television mm-hmm. it's like it's sort of like a lost art now but you could just be on tv being unbelievably cranky all the time wait was he on public tv yeah yeah there, he, he had a public access tv show and he, he uh-huh. would like like, specifically, one of the things he would do was he would go on public access TV and rant about how Bernie Sanders had sold out the movement after, like, the three, after he won election because three specific anarchists voted for him because Putin had <laughs> said to vote for him. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Okay, cool. So Murray Bookchin is this character who runs throughout 20th century anarchism and radical politics. And he and, he and Ben Maria meet uh, on repeated basis, but Ben's not really a big fan of Bookchin's politics. Uh, and so Ben would show up to these discussions and then he would get annoyed at them for being like hopelessly stuck in bullshit theory instead of like doing action. <laughs> so he would stand up and call them all bourgeois white honkies. Uh, ben is white as well. Important understanding this. And then storm out. But then he'd be back the next day for the discussion again. And probably more importantly to our story, he did what any anarchist artsy type would do. He got together with some friends and he started attacking the bourgeois art world. They called this group Black Mask. They aren't sure if they started in 1965 or 1966. It's <laughs> a man after my own heart right here. Why remember things when instead <laughs> yep. you could just not remember things? Always living in the moment. To be fair, this is 60 years ago. One of their first big actions as Black Mask is that they shut down the Museum of Modern Art, the MoMA. And they did it to... Because, to quote Ben, quote, the museum and gallery system separated art from that living interchange and had nothing to do with the vital creative urge. Museums weren't a living house. They were just a repository. Because this is like, the, they're just like on this anti-art kick, right? They're like, fuck the mainstream art world. Fuck the commodification of art. We're going we're gonna to fight it. And the way they shut down the MoMA is really clever. They printed up a manifesto about how they're going to come fuck up the museum. Quote, on Monday, October 10th at 1230, we will close the Museum of Modern Art. This symbolic action is taken at a time when America is on a path of total destruction and signals the opening of another front in the worldwide struggle against suppression. We seek a total revolution, cultural as well as social and political, 
let the struggle begin. It's very, <laughs> uh, let the struggle begin is in all caps, of course. So the MoMA closed in anticipation of their arrival, which was their point all along. <laughs> they closed the MoMA. Uh, and the manifesto they printed and distributed about it talks about their struggle within, in the context of black liberation. And this is going to be some of the stuff that I'm going to like try and piece out to the best of my uh, white ability, white historian ability six years later. The opening line of the manifesto is, a new spirit is rising like the streets of Watts we burn with revolution. And it's kind of presumptuous, right? They're mostly these white kids in black mask at this point. I've had a hard time figuring out the makeup of black mask and the motherfuckers. Uh, they mostly get talked about as a white group, but if you read the history it seems like by the end they were actually primarily Puerto Rican and Puerto Rican race and ethnicity, especially at this time, which we're going to talk about in a future episode when we talk about the Young Lords, plays very strangely into the white and black assumptions about race um, within the United States at the time. And I don't know, at the time, I believe white black mask was primarily a white group. I can't really cleanly do an ad transition right now um, because I can't, I'm sorry, but now you, dear listener, are going to be subjected to exactly the kind of thing that the protagonists of today's show feel very negatively about, which is the commodification of uh, entertainment. I hope that the irony is interesting to you. It is to me. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of Melon Leaf stem cell technology. It's Melon Leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. And we're back. As if nothing ever happened. Ooh. Anyway, 
so they 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 tie their struggle in in this particular way, and it's um. I'm only beginning to wrap my head around race relations in late 60s radical movements. I've been trying for a very long time, right? Uh, but it, it doesn't map cleanly or nicely to current conceptions of race or r- racial politics within the United States and within the left. Black struggle at the time was moving towards a black nationalist approach and away from sort of a liberal multiculturalist approach. And it seems like in a lot of ways, white radicals were being challenged to throw their lot in with black struggle, but in separate ways, right? Um, so... Their methods here seem to be actually fairly accepted within the black radical community, at least among the Black Panthers and stuff. We'll talk about the relationship with the Black Panthers in a little bit. But I'm not trying, or maybe it was all terrible, and I'm not trying to like say it's above reproach. I'm just kind of pointing out some contradictions. So, Black Mask, they continue to do anti art stuff. They disrupt exhibitions and galleries and lectures. They're basically like, kind of doing the whole thing experimentally. They're like, huh, I wonder if this works. They're not like sitting around planning really carefully. They're just like being like, hey, you want to go fuck that thing up? I'm like, yeah, I want to <laughs> go fuck that thing up. Whatever. Uh, they figure as artists, their job was to attack the infrastructure of art with a capital A, how it fueled the war machine and bourgeois culture more broadly. At one point, they disrupted an art le- lecture at NYU and the prof- professor challenged Ben to a debate. And Ben was like, yeah, sure, I'll debate you. But then the whole thing was getting set up as this like elitist closed event, which was exactly the kind of thing that Ben hated. So Black Mask went around and distributed flyers saying that actually the event was free and that everyone was invited to the debate (laughs) and there would be free food and booze. And NYU had to block off like streets, like blocks and blocks uh, in order to keep the public from attending the debate. It kind of turned into a riot outside, which is fucking cool because anti-art art stuff, all very complicated, but... I don't know, whatever, if you're going to fucking debate someone. Yeah, that that definitely using the debate to start a riot just seems like the best way to possibly do a debate. Other totally. than like, I, I, feel, I feel like there's, there's other times where like you're doing a debate and you walk up and it's a trap and you've not, you have now trapped your opponent <laughs> in this place. <laughs> Something I've always wanted to do. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, right? Because like they're not necessarily coming at like the right wing in this case, right? They're coming at the bourgeois world. And so it's like, you know, it's like right now we talk about debate and it's usually the like kind of right wing being like, debate us about whether or not trans people are alive. You know, I'm like, no, I don't really want to. I don't want to debate you about that. But like if someone was like, I don't know, debate me anarchism versus uh, social democracy or something. That's like an interesting debate that could be had, right? Um, I'm not volunteering. Mia, Mia <laughs> no. is volunteering. Um, oh no, I'm anyone, not volunteering. Uh, Mia says that that she'll actually unless unless I really debate. don't like you, in which case, in which case you're getting up. trapped. You've already played your <laughs> yeah. hand here. All right. Yeah, you know, I'm not very good at this whole. Debate I'll organize thing. the riot. Uh, no, I won't. I would never do that. Okay, so they started doing all this stuff, and then after they started doing stuff, they started publishing a magazine. I believe that was the their belief was that you should go in that order. Just putting it out there. It was a four page periodical called Black Mask, and it ostensibly cost 50, uh, five cents, which is about 50 cents now. But they didn't actually charge money at all. Their point was if we put free on it, people will take it and throw it away. If we put five cents on it, people will be like, here's five cents, and then they'll be like, no, we don't need your five cents. But someone has to actually like kind of want it, so it won't just get thrown away. It's actually very clever. And I get really excited about radical publishing. And, and this magazine that they put out was really cool. And one of the better books that you can get is there's anthologies. I think it's also called Up Against the Black Mask and Up Against the Wall, Motherfucker. 
I think PM Press puts it out. It's just their journals, right? It's the stuff that they put out. And the first issue, to use as an example, had three articles. And the first was their manifesto for attacking the MoMA. And then another anarchist from Seattle's like critique of their dumb bullshit action. <laughs> and then their response about why it wasn't dumb and bullshit. I'm kind of in between the two. I think they're both right. And the second was a 10-year-old interview with uh, Camus about how art for art's sake is bullshit, but how art can't be entirely subsumed to struggle. And you got to like um, do the secret third thing. They use the modern way of uh, referring to it. And the third article was a call for action and mutual aid to support black struggle and civil rights in Alabama, reprinted from SNCC, which is, you know, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that we talked about in December, who around this time are about to um, come out with the whole black power thing and Black Panthers are going to start showing up. So their magazine is information about what they're doing, uh, engaging in public debate about what they're doing with people who are on the same side as them, right? More about their broader philosophical approach to art and how to be directly engaged in supporting black struggle, even when that struggle uses different tactics than these anarchists might have personally advocated. Like it talks about fucking voting. I really like this magazine. They put out 10 issues between 1966 and 1968. They distributed them mostly on the Lower East Side where people were like into the magazine. Um, sometimes they went uptown to sell it, but that was just to fuck with people. You know, like, let's go be <laughs> antagonistic. Sell a magazine called Black Mask about how we're going to come to destroy your <laughs> shitty world or whatever. That, that, all, that seems like a really good time. I know. Like, they kind of just had a lot of fun. That's like, really they're complicated but i really i mean whatever of course i put them on my show i clearly think they're cool the the most iconic image of this period when they're black mask is them marching on wall street they're wearing black ski masks and they're holding fake skulls on sticks and they have a sign that says wall street is war street they passed out flyers because of course they did and those flyers announced that the name of the street was to change to war street uh, and I personally think in their legacy, we should continue to try and push that Wall Street is War Street. They kept fucking with the art world. One time, this poet, uh, Ken Koch, was doing a reading in 1967. And he was the symbol of the bourgeois poetry world at the time. Uh, a lot of people really like him. If you read his Wikipedia page, it's this like clearly written by someone who really, really likes him. And the talk page is like, why is this Wikipedia page written by someone who clearly just likes him and is leaving out all of It's like just his side of everything and it's about how he's great and like he uses all these. Anyway, Ken Koch. Some of the black mask people were like, well, let's go fuck with him. We don't like him. He's the symbol of the bourgeois art world. And you know how when people throw pies at politicians, it's like a fun gag, but in also some ways it's like a simulated assassination, you know? It's like a, we can get to you. You know, like the... The pie yeah. throwing thing. That wasn't literal enough for Black Mask. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so one of the Black Mask folks, his name is Alan Van Newkirk. He was the most anarchy looking of them all. He, he got picked for this role because he looked like the cliche anarchist. <laughs> he was this like gun-toting, black-wearing biker who was like tall and gaunt and had just fled Detroit after starting a similar newspaper up there called Gorilla. Um, spelled, you know, like the war, which included poetry by uh, Diane De Prima, who rules. And one day I'm going to just talk about my favorite poet, Diane De Prima, who wrote Revolutionary Letters, um, has one of my favorite poems in it. She worked with the Diggers in San Francisco in the 1960s, which you can listen more about in our episode on the Diggers and the Levelers, which we did last year. Anyway, Alan Van Newkirk, 
Since he looked the most proper classic cartoon villain, tall and lanky, wearing all black, they printed up some leaflets saying poetry is revolution with a photo of the poet Amiri Baraka in handcuffs and wounded by cops because here was a poet who actually like throws down and cares about struggle yep. and, you know, in comparison to this dude, Ken Koch. Alan loads some blanks into a pistol, <laughs> goes to his poetry reading, stands up and fucking shoots him. <laughs> Wait, did he get injured? No, or... but, and here's a funny thing, depending on um, what you read. The way I end up reading Ken Koch's Wikipedia is in one of the books about him, about this event. The book is like, eh, but that's not what the Wikipedia page says. But I think that was written by someone who really likes Ken Koch. <laughs> anyway, uh, they shoot him and he probably faints. And so everyone's like, oh, fuck, he's dead. Everyone starts freaking out. The, the black mask people throw fucking flyers around, screaming revolution, and then run screaming out into the night. The, the version on his Wikipedia page that's referenced again in this book is that Alan did not faint, looked at them and said, oh, grow up. Either way, they simulate assassinate this poet. I don't actually... I'm coming on as neutral about this. I'm not, I'm not being like, this was a, a morally good decision they all made. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, I mean, like, it, I don't know. Because, like, you, you actually can kill, like, or, like, severely injure someone by shooting blanks at them. Like, that, that is an actual thing. Yeah, I mean, they're, like, they're, yeah. they're far enough away. They're not, like, it's not, like, yeah, I think. They're, like, putting their head <laughs> Yeah. But, but, no, it, it, it is traumatizing as shit. For everyone I'm still coming crowd. down the side of kind of funny. I know, <laughs> I know. Like... Yeah. You know, I, I'm not casting the stones here. Uh, they were polarizing for some strange reason. It's hard for me to imagine exactly why. Their actions and words drew lots of new supporters, and their ideas behind total revolution were infectious. The idea that revolution needed to be cultural as well as political. And... And also that you couldn't just have cultural change like some of the dropout hippies were saying. You also needed political change. The apolitical hippies didn't like them because they were too political. The super serious, no smiling radicals, especially the the (laughs) Marxist-Leninists, didn't like them because they were too weird. And the good proper communists, you know, they were like, they were like, look, you're against the U.S. war machine and for the Vietnamese people, but you're not directly supporting the North Vietnamese government either. So you're terrible. And then the art world, of course, is like, yeah, we don't know these guys. They're not with us. No idea where they came in from. <laughs> Which meant that the people who didn't fit in anywhere, the radicals who wanted to see a different world who didn't fit in anywhere, drifted towards Black Mask. And Ben Morea gets called the informal leader of all this stuff. And I think that's both true and not true. Whenever you're doing a bunch of like cool crime stuff, sometimes you don't really want to take credit for it. And so sometimes the like leaders in this kind of situation are as much like the fall guy as a formal leader. And so when I say like Ben Morea started a magazine, it wasn't him. It was three people started a magazine. He was one of them. And he's the one who like talks about it a lot. And they were very informal. They didn't have like visioning meetings, official membership or hierarchy, any of that stuff. Um, But you know who does have official hierarchy? Actually, is it it the product? You know, Capitalism is sometimes kind of not very hierarchical in this weird way. Yeah. Eh. I mean, like, in terms of formal. Yeah, no, I have really come off. Okay, I'm going to, like, 
I know I just like talk about like, oh, it's cool. They all ran around had guns. And I'm going to do this like serious thing for a moment, like actual serious thing where I am now um, a very staunch, I've always been, I've always believed in gun safety, but you're all going to be hearing way too much of it from me for a while. If you own firearms, they need to be locked up if they're not on your person. I don't care. I don't care what your reasoning is. I don't care what your excuse is. If your gun is not on you, it needs to be locked up or it cannot be accessed by people who should not access that firearm. Uh, that's my super serious no smiling thing for today and probably for a while. So, yeah, if you're going to make that decision uh, to to go armed, you you need to do that. That's that's my ad, the ad for gun safety. I guess there's probably actual ads for that too. Whatever. Here's some other ads. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon Serum. This next-generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty System for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. And we're back. Another cool thing about Black Mask is it's where the term affinity groups comes from. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, well, huh. it's where it comes into English. Uh, mm. There's this model that a lot of people who participate in various street protests use, and also a lot of other like ways of trying to change the world, called affinity groups, where you basically like it's like your crew of friends and you do stuff together, um, and it's usually somewhat informal, but you have like shared affinity, and you're a group of people. And you go out and accomplish things in that way. And it's a very effective system. And it's like part of the way that um, if you want to be very effective in demonstrations, get yourself an affinity group. Um, that's the ad I should have done. Whatever. It comes mostly from, uh, or it comes into, came to them through the Spanish anarchists who were part of the Spanish Civil War. But basically at one of these like talks with Murray Bookchin, the, the public news, public TV anchor who rants about Bernie Sanders, Basically, he was like, and we shall all call ourselves Grupa Aficionada or 
affinidad, and then like, <laughs> and everyone's like, we could probably use the word affinity groups. And Murray Bookchin's like, no, it must be the Spanish. <laughs> sounds like um, And they were like, okay, but we're not gonna. And and actually, I ran across three different in three different fucking books exactly what the word that was being translated as affinity groups was like in Spanish. And I don't fucking know because there's three different fucking things. Oh, no. So I'm just going to call them affinity groups. And to Black Mask, an affinity group was a street gang with an analysis. More modern usage is, of course, a group of friends who work together to accomplish stuff, usually as part of a part of but autonomous from a larger movement. We're going to talk about one more thing they did before they stopped being Black Mask, and then we're going to make everyone wait on a cliffhanger. It's not very, I, I spoiled my own cliffhanger. <laughs> Black Mask is on the scene. They're doing their thing. It's 1967. I don't know if you knew about this, but um, the U.S. was invading other countries in the middle of the 20th century. It only happened the one time. It gets called the Vietnam War. Probably only lasted a year or so, I think. Uh, that all whole thing is sarcasm. The Vietnam War had been going on for more than a decade in 1967. The war for civil rights was raging at home. Sit-ins were happening. We talked about a lot of that uh, in December. Black and white freedom riders had gone into the South to register voters and were met with the organized armed violence of the Ku Klux Klan. Vietnamese monks were setting themselves on fire to protest the U.S. bombs. Just the year before, a black veteran, James Meredith, had been shot as part of his march against fear, which, again, we also covered. Um, and you've got this hippie thing going on at the same time. The Lower East Side was a major haven for what gets called the hippies. The name is a media construction by and large. Malcolm X said in his autobiography that the word was coined in Harlem in the 1940s for white people who tried to act blacker than black people did. And a lot of people who get called the hippies at this time period, they didn't call themselves hippies. They talked about hip culture and counterculture or called themselves freaks or did all of these. They basically all hated the word hippie and... Um, I would have too if that was where I lived and then. Um, the motherfuckers in particular, who we'll talk about, to the black mask evolves into, spoiler alert, they call themselves freaks rather than hippies. So these freaks or whatever, they pour into the Lower East Side because they're all dropping out of the mainstream society, mainstream white society. So all of these white kids are pouring into the Lower East Side, which is, I'm going to go with complicated if people have more negative things to say about that, I'm fully here for that. They weren't, by and large... Okay, this depends on who you ask. Oh, boy. <laughs> they weren't... Either they weren't, by and large, hanging out with their new Puerto Rican neighbors, or some of them were, or everyone was getting along fine. Uh, I expect that, by and large, the especially the apolitical white hippies were probably not interacting with the Puerto Rican um, yeah. culture that they moved into. And... They were mostly just trying to live somewhere where rent was cheap and no one gave a shit if they like smoked weed and hung out in parks all day. And yeah, that is one of the messy, dark parts about hippie history. A lot of these freaks were artists. Some of them started calling for artists to get more involved in politics. And in particular, they wanted to stop the Vietnam War, which had been going on for that fucking decade. And if you listen to Ben talk about it now, he points out that one thing that people don't quite understand is the like um, the urgency that the Vietnam War was felt uh, how, by the countercultural left, that this war was being done in their name. And of course, because there was the draft 
everyone you know is like dying and shit, but also just this like war against the Vietnamese people being waged in your name. And a lot of people, the motherfuckers included, basically were like, that war is going to stop or we're going to die. Um, and people really meant it. And that's like some of the stuff that gets left out of more liberal history about the hippies or more like history that's just like, and then they did drugs and had tie-dye shirts and stuff, you know. That said, some of the ways that they tried to stop the war, uh, <laughs> let's talk about Angry Arts Week. Um, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> flyers went up around town uh, calling for what got called Angry Arts Week. And it started, they started having meetings to get ready. And this is where this guy, Osha Newman, the guy who kind of regrets joining, um, he started hanging out at that point because he was a painter in the Lower East Side. Uh, there was also a, quote, quasi-Marxist street theater group called the Pageant Players, who I can't find more information about, but I want to know more about because they sound cool. Yeah, that's a sick name. I know. Bread and Puppet was there also, and they rule. Bread and Puppet still exists. I've been to a bunch of their plays. They're into the idea that art should be for the people, not only for the rich, and they're involved in all these like cool lefty things, and they just have been forever. Um, they like go around like they, like, they call their movement like the cheap art movement. Um, that art should be affordable to people and stuff. Originally, actually, there was going to be a chance that this week was going to be 50-50 split between the motherfuckers and Bread and Puppet, um, just so you know how cool Bread and Puppet is, but I didn't have time because That's there's so much sweet. about the motherfuckers. Because <laughs> they're really opposite, but in working in parallel with each other, anti-art, anarchic movements. None of the famous established art people from the scene were at those meetings, just actual working artists, just for the better. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and at these meetings, people start saying, like, look, art should mean something. Art should direct people towards motion, towards action, towards unfucking the world. And this was a radical viewpoint at the time because avant-garde was, at the, was really big at this point. And it was really into art for art's sake. Um, any art that had a purpose, even if that purpose is to arouse like pornography, was not true art with a capital T and a capital A. That's an unbelievably annoying way to think about art. Right? <laughs> like, I know. It's oh. like, I should have led with that so you all like better understand why they're like, let's go fuck up the galleries and shit. It's, it's also funny too because it's like, okay, like you guys have named, you, you guys have like, you guys have named yourself like the vanguard and you, the thing you are vanguarding is don't do anything. It's oh like, my God, that's what really? avant-garde mean, isn't it? Yeah. Whoa. The vanguard of nothing. Oh, but that... See, that sounds cool. <laughs> I like when Margaret learned something. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, by, I, I, I'm saying this, this is all based on like a very, very dim memory of something I remember David Graeber writing like two decades ago. No, I'm sure. Like, I don't I'm, know. I'm pretty sure it does mean that. Yeah, no, I, 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 there's no part of me that doubts you. I run into this idea all the time as a musician. Uh, I'm in black metal and black metal is awful and full of terrible people and true black metal not even spell with a capital t but instead with a v instead of a u what yeah oh, that's no. I know it's true and it's also cult with a u instead of a, a c instead of a, a, a v i know letters huh. i'm a writer with a v instead of a u so cult anyway it's supposed to be apolitical and which of course means promoting right-wing values in some circles <laughs> And I don't give a shit what is and isn't true art or true black metal. I just fucking want to make the things that I want to make. And so fuck you, whatever. Anyway, that's my rant. So as a counterpoint, there was this other sort of anarchic radical around at the time, Abby Hoffman, 
who he wrote the book, Steal This Book. He was with the Yippies. I'm sure we'll cover him some other time. And his quote in The Village Voice about Angry Arts Week was, demanding that artists do anti-war art is demanding that chefs cook anti-war food, which sounds like a sick burn until you actually like think about it. Food has always been part of resistance movements. Um, maybe people who are like chefs with a capital C and a V instead of a something uh, might not cook anti-war food, but like people in movements cook anti-war food because they're like feeding mass numbers of people as they go off yeah. to go protest wars. And so it actually is, it's exactly that. It, it's, well, let's get rid of chefs in this context, right? So let's get rid of the artist in this context. If the artist can't make anti-war art, then what's good is the artist? And this is me arguing with someone who's been dead since I was six. And I'm right. <laughs> uh, come at me, Abby Hoffman's ghost. Except I used to believe that my one of my teachers in school was actually secretly Abby Hoffman. And Abby Hoffman had faked his own death. And he was uh, working at the... Anyway, that's a separate story. So, <laughs> Angry Arts Week. It goes on despite Abby Hoffman's misgivings. January 23rd, 1967. Some angry artists went to high mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Uh, the Archbishop of New York was this asshole named Francis Spellman, who was all in on the war. Even the Pope was like, hey, chill the fuck out, man. Like, peace is usually oh, no. better than war. <laughs> you know? Archbishop of New York, no, nah, he wasn't listening to this Pope. He was like, no, we demand, quote, total victory in Vietnam. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Would not have supported the mass bombing of Vietnam. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think even on his bad days. That's a, <laughs> so they disrupted mass. They unfurled posters in, in the aisle in the middle of it. Um, I think they like came in and sat in the pews and then like in the middle of mass, like unfurled posters because they're artists. And it's a poster of a maimed Vietnamese kid with the words, thou shalt not kill and Vietnam written on it. In case anyone like didn't get the message, it was like too subtle. Why well, look. You know, Ben 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 Garrison overdoes it, but so, some sometimes you do have to just tell people what's in the picture and what they're supposed to believe about it. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Cops were on them immediately. They'd been tipped off. It's possible that they had infiltrators. It's possible that these just didn't have very good opsec, and someone told someone, and someone told someone. The angry artist got dropped off to jail to the tombs, which is practically just going to end up on the fucking cool people did cool stuff bingo. Everyone goes to the tombs. There's <laughs> the jail in New York that's been around for a goddamn 170 years or something. They spend the night in jail before they're bailed out. I don't know whether it's by the larger anti-war movement or just like specifically angry arts funds. No one ever talks about the cool organizing stuff. What about the people who organized the cool fundraisers to bail out the people who made the posters. What about the people who stayed up all night making the posters who couldn't go get arrested because they had kids or anyway, whatever. Um, I'm making, oh, drawing attention to the fact that I end up talking about the people who got arrested instead of the people who did the cool behind the scenes work that's more anonymous. However, if the people who did the actions were more anonymous, they wouldn't have gone to jail. It's true. Okay. Most of the Angry Arts Week's action was less action. About 500 artists participated in total. They did a bunch of poetry readings, collective murals, film screenings, etc., mostly at NYU. And there was some other cool stuff they did. They drove around a flatbed truck with people doing performances on the back of it, on the streets. They passed out leaflets and poetry. Um, Bread and Puppet did a performance that was kind of interesting. They put on a play that was like a physician lecturing a med school about what napalm does to you. And then just like oh boy. descends. Actually, you know, I wrote Bread and Puppet, but I actually think this was Living Theater, but I'm not sure. 
I'm sorry. I know both of you groups are still around. Because I know that living theater was into theater of the theater of cruelty, where you're kind of like kind of mean to your audience. And this is a very much a mean to your audience thing. <laughs> it starts off. This play is, is cool in retrospect, but it would suck to go to. It's a physician lecturing in a med school class on what napalm does to you, and then turns into him going on a tirade for hours about all the statistics about how fucked up the war is. <laughs> I wouldn't want to go to that play. I'm glad they did it. I'm glad someone else sat through it. So, they had an angry arts week. It, you'll be shocked to know this, yeah. it didn't actually stop the war. Yeah. No way! Wow. Yeah. I, I keep oh thinking about I, I think it's, was it Kurt Vonnegut who had that whole line about how, like, the entire arts world, like, threw its weight against the Vietnam War and it had the effect of a pie drop from three feet on a ladder? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something Vonnegut would say, yeah. So a group of artists wanted to keep going after Angry Arts Week was over. And they tend, these were the walks who tended towards the uh, spicy side of things. And Black Mask was like, well, if you like spicy... And we like spicy. Let's do something spicy. And that's who we'll all hear about on Wednesday. In the meantime, stay cool, everyone. Thanks. That's my new tagline. I hope you like it. It's not going to be my tagline. Stay cool, everyone. Okay, fine. I'll never (laughs) say it again. That's your new line. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, okay, great. I think we should okay. I think I think we should put it on pause and then bring it back in the summer because it is so cold right now. Well, that's because you live in a terrible place. That's true. <laughs> it's it's a real disaster. Well, that's Black Mask. Any 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 thoughts on these merry you know, pranksters who aren't the merry pranksters? Actually, gotten a lot of fights. The merry pranksters. What if our line okay. was, uh, "That's it. Chill out." Ooh, chill out. Uh, chill, chill people out. did chill stuff. We're, I'd say we're open to suggestions, let's, let's but we're workshop not. Workshop it. Yeah, yeah. This is a closed. Uh, dear listener, don't don't send me your suggestions. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> it's just, just terrible. Uh, so anyway, Mia, um, either thoughts or things that you want to tell the world about. You know, I guess I saw this. I, I think it's it's really easy to be very hard on the people who tried to stop the Vietnam War and didn't stop the Vietnam War, but. I don't know. I like. I I think it's worth understanding that anti-war movements very very rarely work, and that people tried. Yeah. Like, you know, like the the the, the range, like a lot of the, the art stuff sounds really silly, and it's like, well, how is it ever going to work? But like, people tried a lot of stuff. Yeah. Like they tried bomb, like they tried marches, they tried bombings, they tried regular politics, and just none of it worked. Yeah. And and I think that's. I don't know. I I I think that's something that it makes it easier to sit back and judge, as opposed to like I don't know, like uh, dude, like I don't know, like people people listening to this are probably old enough to remember, like you know, the, the sort of like the the second half of the anti war movement where yeah. it just it just nothing, like it, against the rock. It's like nothing nothing stopped it, right? Like people people tried a lot of stuff and just nothing worked. And yeah, we shut down the city of Portland and. It didn't do anything. Yeah, and it just didn't. It, yeah, it's it like one, one, once the sort of war machine has got going, it's yeah, really, really like impossibly difficult to stop. And yeah, I don't know. I think like I think people should be slightly less judgmental about that, especially given. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe no, there are right. people who are listening to the show who weren't alive during Iraq. Like, I guess, I guess that's technically possible now. But yeah, I don't know. Like, we 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 all also failed to stop our war. Yeah. So. 
No, that's such a good point. And I think one of the reasons I'm like, oh, art doesn't do anything is because I'm coming at this as an artist. And so I'm like self-negating about like the efficacy of the kind of thing that I would most immediately be drawn to. And instead I'm like, all that matters is, and it's like, no, it, it probably changing, trying to change the cultural consensus was a very valid thing that they were trying to do and had a lot of success with it. It took a long time. The inertia of changing, because most of the U.S., I think it was like split 80-20. Um, I think 80% of America was like, yeah, fuck them up, get the commies, you know? And 20% was like, mm, we'd rather you didn't, you know? And so trying to change that matters. And I, I that's true. I need to, I need to, and, and I, I think I think it's also because if if you look at the things that actually ended the Vietnam War, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of sort of political maneuvering going on, and then there, and then there's the sort of mass revolt inside of the American army. And I, I don't yeah, think, I think the mass revolt effective. in the American army, yeah. But like I, I like like I don't think that happens without people doing this shit, yeah. Right? Like, you know, because I mean, like 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 people like people who are in these things get drafted, yeah. And you know, I, like it, it's 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 a really slow process. It would have been a lot better if it had worked faster. But I think, I, I think people sort of like, people jump from, okay, here's all this ineffective stuff. And then they, they sort of like take this leap into, oh, hey, there was the sort of mass resistance to everyone killing their officers in Vietnam. And you, you have to look at like the, the, the through course of how that actually happened yeah. and how we got to that point. And that wasn't, and that was something that, that was, you know, an active political project. It wasn't just that people went to Vietnam were like, oh my God, this war, it turns out fighting a war is bad. Like there was, you know, there was sort of decades of like active political struggle in like outside of the military, but also affecting the people who were getting put in. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, like, I, I think, I think that matters. And I think it's, you know, I, there's, there's this Mao quote that I think is real that I've seen, but it's, you know, so some, someone asked him in like, I think someone asked him in like, like 1970, like, like it was the Chinese revolution successful. And he, and he was like, well, no, in 50 years. <laughs> And yeah, yeah and it's like, totally. you have to, it's, 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 you know, on the one hand, like, yeah, like there, there is with, with all movements, there is this incredible urgency that you have to deal with, but then you also have to deal with the fact that, you know, the stuff that you're doing might be incredibly successful, but it might be incredibly successful, like 15 years down the line. Right. And it's, it's really hard both in the moment and tracing it back to actually see that. No, that, that uh, makes a lot of sense. And actually some of the stuff that we're going to talk about on Wednesday um, is going to talk about some of the stuff that they really did accomplish like some of the stuff that they feel like that they're like, Hey, this, this worked, not everything they did worked. Um, yeah, <laughs> but some of what they did worked and, uh, things are about to get spicier. That can't be that. No, we can't use that one. Um, no, 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 no. I got it. Yeah. Stay, okay. I stay, I see everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got to like do a little <laughs> hand gesture. You all got to make up with the hand ge- <laughs> at home. You just have to figure it out on your own. Yeah, you won't know what I did. <laughs> yeah, everyone can do what Thank they God. want with their hand gestures, uh, as long uh, as they're not a scene. I guess. Yeah, whatever. I was gonna say. Uh, Never mind. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Playing with fire here. All right, we will see. Wait, no. May, tell tell us what you do, Mia. Oh yeah, um, I I am one of the hosts of It Could Happen Here. What's mm. that about? It's 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 a podcast about things falling apart and putting them back together again. Uh-huh. Okay, and that sounds yeah, exciting. We, we, yeah, you can find it in the places you find podcasts every single day of the week, except for the weekends. Um, yeah, you can also find me at Twitter at 
it me chr3 i need to change that at some point because it's 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 it me <laughs> yeah but that, that that will happen later down the line so right now okay. it's it me chr3 or if you just search items be destroyed you'll find it yeah. why do you have against i never mind i don't know why i'm <laughs> tired i'll talk to you all wednesday see you wednesday bye everyone see you wednesday People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts on Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart.